Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, we are talking with Victoria Nelson, whose novel Neighbor George we discussed in episode 128. When I first learned about Neighbor George, I was surprised to realize that Nelson wrote fiction as well as the deeply learned nonfiction that I had got to know about a decade earlier. It turns out that Victoria Nelson is a woman of parts. She is a novelist, short story writer, memoirist, editor, and independent scholar with a master's in medieval studies from the University of Toronto, but no academic union card, as she calls it in this episode. Nelson, one of the true originals of American letters, has always caught her own path as a writer and thinker. Her 2001 book, The Secret Life of Puppets, established her voice, by turns shrewd and amused, lyrical and visionary, as a unique presence in intellectual life, and it developed ideas that we are still wrestling with now, 20 years after its publication. In the first chapter of The Secret Life of Puppets, Nelson writes, quote, Much as we might like to ignore the fact, the gods are ours. It seems to me that this crystallizes the book's main idea. Whatever a sanitizing historicism might say, the old practices of theurgic magic and the Neoplatonic mysticism they served are not just the quaint superstitions of a less enlightened age. The old gods and diamonds are ours still, whether we like it or not. The ancient theurgic practice of ensouling effigies of human beings, like puppets or statues, became heretical and was banished from the zeitgeist. But it stuck around in what Nelson calls the sub-zeitgeist, in critically disavowed genres and media, pulp novels, video games, and the like. The golem, sublimated into the realm of archetypes, resurfaces as the android. The platonic notion of the earth as a macrocosm of the human, with a hidden interior analogous to a human soul, returns in alchemy and in the fictions of Poe, Lovecraft, and Lamb. The disowned interior of the human reasserts itself in an expressionism that, disowned itself, returns in the films of David Lynch and Lars von Trier. Such an idea as Nelson's could only be pursued through a wide and eclectic learning, and only by a scholar fearless enough to ask her readers, is this real or am I crazy? Anyhow, I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I also hope you'll think about joining our Patreon, though I'm sure you don't need the reminder. You're either already a member or guiltily pushing away the awareness that you should be a member. There's some suspense here. Is this the week, guilty people? Is this the week we shake the tree and at last the apple of your largesse falls at our feet? Is this the week you finally avail yourselves of the years, years of extra shows and writings piled up in our Patreon site, like treasure in a dragon's lair? Is this the day you will forever remember as the moment you found your true purpose and destiny? That's between you and your guilty conscience. 
But I am here to tell you that the possibility of your transformation is at hand. I can't tell you what you'll transform into. Maybe an insect, or an android, or a diamond body. But I can promise it'll be weird. project, the Victoria Nelson project, to me, at least from my distance, seems like a hermeneutical project where you were interpreting the world, putting the Hermes in hermeneutics, <laughs> and that your fiction writing seems to be a part of that like world understanding project. It seems to me that there is a kind of integrity or a kind of interconnectivity between the different parts of your creative work. Is that how you see it? Um, I do see it as sequential, although I uh, I hope it's consistent. The way it sort of panned out was that I wrote fiction as a young person and a teenager. And then in school, I got very interested in medieval literature. And I went to grad school. I stopped at the MA level. I did not get a PhD. At, but I did it in medieval studies. Then I went through an enormous life change a few years later and went to the Hawaiian islands for two weeks and ended up staying there 10 years and got very immersed in uh, Polynesian and Pacific culture. Uh, briefly went back to grad school in archeology, span which had been a childhood passion of mine. Um, Eventually, I washed back up on the shores of the U.S. mainland in the early 80s and kind of reintegrated myself. And it was a bumpy ride. It was a big culture shock. Um, I wasn't interested that interested in what was going on in American lit at that time. And I found myself very drawn into Eastern European literature, particularly the literature of interwar Poland and the writers Bruno Schulz and Witold Gombrowicz and got very much into all of that. At the same time, I always had this great passion for ghost stories. Not so much science fiction, not so much fantasy, just plain old ghost stories, M.R. James, um, at all. At that time, I had read very little Lovecraft. At any rate, I also started, because when I came back, and then I came back to Berkeley, my scholarly genes started refiring again after a long absence. And I began to get very interested in the whole idea of why is the supernatural in American culture, primarily North American. Why is it always depicted as evil and of the devil? Whereas in other cultures, uh, more traditional cultures, the supernatural has both aspects, you know, good and bad, positive and negative. 
And so in a very, I mean, that was kind of an underlying thing. I would not attribute to myself any sort of overlying agenda. Now I'm going to discover this, that, and the other. Uh, I've always worked kind of one step in front of the other very, very instinctively and intuitively. So that began a long journey of first looking at uh, the European fantastical, you know, writers like Schultz and Franz Kafka and so on. And also wondering to myself, well, why, why are these considered high art? And why is the supernatural kind of, in a way, confined, ghettoized in the pop subculture in the sort of Anglo-American colonial mindset. This eventually kind of evolved my thinking into this notion of what I like to call the sub-zeitgeist, is mm -hmm. the whole realm of pop culture where the supernatural has been rampant and completely accepted but always at the level of genre and B-movie and, you know, low class throughout really both the 19th and 20th century. Eventually, I kind of got around to this notion that, well, this is really, in a funny way, the expression of a kind of repressed religious impulse. That is, people still have a deep, deep need to believe there is some kind of non-material transcendental world beyond our material world. And the explanation for why the supernatural has been not only low class, but evil, it's like something of the devil, is really can be traced exactly back to both the Protestant Reformation and the scientific revolution in the 17th century, which was a profound shift in culture. At that point, the old medieval Catholicism and the notion of, for instance, miracles, which are a very positive manifestation of the supernatural in religious terms, is suddenly kind of wiped off the map. The uh, notion of the cessation of miracles decreed that miracles actually stopped in the year 600 CE. After that, there were no more miracles. So what that meant was that if anyone experienced any kind of phenomenon that didn't really fit into a rational scientific explanation that the safest thing to do was to say that it came from the devil. Right. Uh, this was this wonderful kind of liminal time in the 17th century when all of this was going on. And I just would say as a side observation that I got into in Gothica is my sense of the witchcraft trials that were so prevalent in the 17th century and weren't in all the uh, you know centuries before in European Catholic culture, it was this kind of fading grasp on the supernatural. 
mm. you know, this was sort of the last, <laughs> you know, the last hurrah in a horrible way of holding on to that past worldview. And then eventually that died down. I think the last witchcraft trial was uh, 1736 or something like that. So the supernatural, first of all, became delegated to the devil. And second of all, you know, I don't want to go through a whole thing about literary history, but 19th century, romantic, well, there's first there's the Gothic, you know, revolution at the end of the 18th century, and then sensationalist fiction in the 19th century, and so on and so on. The supernatural, in other words, gets delegated to the imaginary. Um, and mm. it's not the proper imaginary. It's definitely the low-class imaginary because the supernatural then becomes superstition. Right. That's the great label from the 19th century on, superstition. So this need, which I really completely believe in gets kind of pushed underground and it can only find its expression in the imaginary, the evil imaginary, which takes us right up to the year 1999. The Secret Life of Puppets stops on a dive in the year 1999. Right. Although you do kind of send tendrils off into the future, and I think the, the book has proven to be quite prophetic in some ways. Well, Gothica is meant to be the sequel, the 21st century sequel. That's Gothica. But even in Secret Life, like your ideas about a new expressionism, I find that formulation of a kind of like, not a genre, but more of a sensibility at large in the arts, I think has, that's borne out. I've, I, a lot of the things, the tropes that felt very new at that time are now kind of firmly ingrained in the way that people make films and write books now. So... No, kudos for that. But in your book, you have a bunch of different ways to make us feel this transition away from, let's say, the old balance between Platonism and Aristotelianism, as you call it, like the, uh, the noose and the logos, right? And there was a shift in favor of logos in the modern era, and you find a bunch of ways of expressing it. One of the most poignant for me was the, the first chapter where you talk about the the image of the grotto and how when Plato, it's almost like we buried Plato underground mm -hmm. so that he became a kind of demon or vampire down there. And oh, we have all the same. And I love the way you frame it constantly in the book. It's all the same cosmology, but gone chthonic. It's underground. It's buried and it's coming up and it's got all the same figures and the same um, geography, but just inverted kind of like in stranger things, the upside down, like this, this upside down world, this underworld that is coming up as the repressed, right? The return of the repressed. But here, the difference is that whereas Freud thought that the return of the repressed was the return of a kind of naive narcissism of childhood, in your case, what is repressed and coming back is an aspect of reality that we've neglected. I remember hearing in one inter interview you gave, uh, you described yourself as an unabashed supernaturalist. Is that, do you still stick by that? Oh, absolutely. And, and, the, yeah. I would also say that there's a tremendous amount of unconscious Platonism operating today. And I did go into that a little bit in the book, but it's continued to proliferate. And that is in tech cyber theory, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. which is complete 
by the book Platonism, where virtual reality is seen as you know the world of form and ideas that it really exists and that uh, furthermore artificial intelligence is a kind of uh, what I call in the, in the book divine human divine machine you know I mean it's a function of how well how people tend to translate forbidden ideas into acceptable ideas right. uh, so the machine really became from early on became the divinizing factor that justifies belief in some kind of ideal world beyond us uh, and to me it's still it it beggars description it it completely uh, stymies me to see the cyber theorists promoting these notions that artificial intelligence has its own agency. Right. That it isn't a, a, a collection of programs generated by a human operating by virtue of a plug into a socket in the wall uh, and dependent on a reliable source of electricity <laughs> and the notion that this entity that they really believe in is some kind of independent operating thing. Uh, you know, I, I think I even mentioned back in the book, which was, you know, that's 20 years ago, Ray Kurzweil and his notion of robo sapiens. <laughs> and uh, it's only gotten worse, I have to say. <laughs> it's only gotten worse because the tendency, and, and I think a lot of it, I mean, this is my own prejudice, and it may be completely off base, but I do think the lack of a humanistic training in so many of these theorists uh, prevents them from understanding the deep roots in Western culture, at least, of what their thinking is and how it really coincides, you know, structurally and in so many ways with ideas that were in circulation a couple of millennia ago. And that unconsciousness is a flaw. Well, as a fellow humanist, I couldn't agree more. And what you're saying is sort of music to my ears. I agree. I think the world needs a whole lot more of, um, I don't know, Perhaps it's presumptuous to say what the world needs, uh, and unless like Bert Bacharach and Hal David, we say what the world needs now is love, which that does actually <laughs> seem to be true, it seems to me. Uh, but it might also need art, or at least some understanding of art that's more than like five years old, because these things are traditions, you know? Well, I mean, and also I would say an understanding of history and the notion that... Um, for instance, I mean, it's very common. It's you first uh, always you see it first in the sub zeitgeist. First, you see it in all these movies about uploading consciousness. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> and now it's taken. Uh, now it's taken as a literal reality. The metaphor has been conflated with reality. And to me, that just seems a little nuts. Bad magic when you start mixing up your metaphor for the thing the metaphor serves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You might get in some trouble. 
it reminds me very much of the 18th century rationalist metaphor of the of the clockwork universe. You know, in essence, computer theory is mechanistic in that same reductive way, but it's not acknowledged as such because it gets conflated with people's very unconscious desires for some kind of divinizing transcendental uh, territory. Yeah, this is so important because one, one, okay, so there are theorists, of course, who are aware, for example, that the idea of artificial intelligence has a history and you can go back and read uh, the myth of Galatea, or uh, there's all this the, these roots, as you said, these deep roots to these ideas. So there are theorists who recognize that, but because they adopt a secular rationalist framework for how they view reality, they do the same thing that Todorov. Uh, you point that out in your, Todorov's famous book on the fa on fantastic literature, where he just basically assumes that the modern way of looking at the world is correct mm -hmm. in every facet, and of course. It's not surprising to any of us that he thinks that way. But the thing is, if a theorist becomes aware of, for example, the mythic or archetypal roots of technological culture, what they say, and you'll often hear this, is that humans are finally bringing into reality what were formerly just dreams or aspirations or yearnings that manifested as these archetypal ideas. Freud says that in the civilization and its discontents. He says, I think it's in that book where he says basically like the technology is the externalization of our wishes and yearnings and drives. Essentially, technology is uh, a form of wish fulfillment. It makes us a prosthetic god, as he puts yeah, it in that prosthetic book. gods. Yeah. That's a wonderful phrase. I didn't know that. That's that's I totally agree. Although his conviction was completely materialist and he accomplished the task of, if I may use a metaphor, downloading the soul into a notion of, you know, the ego, the id, mm -hmm. et cetera, you know, completely stripping it of any kind of transcendental forms. What my quarrel might be with later theorists, I mean, he, Freud was deeply, deeply educated in Western philosophical thought. Later theorists, I would argue, they <laughs> Google and Wikipedia, Galatea, and so on, but they miss deeper right. currents of philosophy that have, hmm. uh, you know, Platonism that totally influenced medieval Catholicism. And med medieval Catholicism, I would argue, in turn, has deeply and unconsciously continued to Western medieval theology and Catholicism and folk practices have still a very strong presence in our culture. Um, the wonderful critic Carol Clover, who wrote the great book uh, about the last girl left, you know, about horror movies, is a medievalist of, of yeah. great standing. And she once said, you'll never understand current pop culture if you don't understand Western medieval culture. Right. And I, I completely agree with that as a former failed medievalist myself. <laughs> I, as a, I, I didn't even get, I don't even get to say I'm a failed medievalist, but um, 
that was my that was an, my an intention. Unbegun, yeah. An unbegun project. <laughs> I took a few classes at St. Michael's <laughs> and I really enjoyed them. Um, so the point is that um, I think you're absolutely, I think that that's brilliant. I need to read that because uh, I haven't read the last Last Girl Standing, is that what it's called? No, the, it's, you know, forgive me, I don't think that's the actual title of her book. I My memory has okay. gone, but but what her thesis is that the horror movies of the late 20th century all involved a female heroine and everyone else gets horribly slaughtered yeah. uh, in the Halloween and the Chainsaw Massacre, et cetera, et cetera. And then she's the last one left. And Carol's contention was that the audience, which is primarily adolescent boys, were able to identify with the last girl left uh, in a very strong and subliminal way. And, and that was part of the point of the whole plot trajectory. Right. Point being that I think that in a sense, we are kind of living out a kind of medieval dream. Like we're, we're not out of, I mean, the, the, the very fact that we call that era medieval, the Middle Ages, we see it in a completely relative way to us. Uh, you know, you can talk about Athenian culture, and that's kind of an objective thing on its own. We could be before or after it. But the, the medieval era, when you, you name it, you're putting it somewhere. In a sense, it's the very nomenclature we use to refer to that era tells us that we're not outside of it. We're caught up in it. And it's still doing its thing with us. And I, I like what you're saying about how, because um, I think that's something that I, that I really uh, um, appreciate about your book is that you point to the continuity between the the late antique world and the medieval world. It wasn't the break that we think it was. It really is that the medieval world evolved out of the ancient world. And if we evolved out or devolved out of the medieval world, then you get to a sense of history, which is much more continuous. And suddenly it doesn't feel so absurd that an idea that comes up in Silicon Valley would have roots that go directly mm -hmm back to like, um, I don't know, Alexandria in the, in the third century or um, medieval Venice or something like that. You know, it's, it kind of makes sense when you look at it that way. Yes. And, and we North Americans are notoriously bad on uh, uh, acknowledging, you know, history in that sense. I would just say that I think you're not supposed to use the word medieval anymore. I know you're not supposed to use the word renaissance anymore, but I've I've fallen behind on what the later, later terms are. But of course, what's called quote unquote medieval is a vast yeah. span of time, more than a thousand years in Western European culture that of course, completely obliterates all the other cultures, uh, in particular Chinese, going on at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, but is nonetheless the main culture that we, quote unquote, we uh, are heirs to, whether we like it or not. Gothic, the word Gothic was a pejorative mm -hmm. term. Um, in the 18th and 19th century. And even Shakespeare was regarded as Gothic in part because of this supernaturalism in, in Shakespeare, but it was considered to be, you know, they, the, uh, the sort of techies of the 18th century, uh, the forward thinkers just regarded everything before that 
uh, and it, it was particularly a Protestant bias, was as a, as a swamp of superstition, something to be completely separated from. So that when the these Gothic novels began in the late 18th century, it was, in a funny way, it's a little bit like what happened at the end of the 20th century. It was a reaction against that. And mm-hmm. not all Gothic novels were had supernatural elements. Anne Radcliffe and Horace Walpole, the sort of first progenitors, were very, you know, kind of, if there was anything remotely supernatural, like Walpole apologized and, and Radcliffe had other explanations, so on and so on. But gradually with other writers, it took over. And of course, the romantic became the other kind of great don't want to say anti-rationalist necessarily, but it was a different sensibility. Mm-hmm. What we're going through now in the 21st century, I would never correlate with the Romantics uh, in the uh, early 19th century. Mm. It's not. <laughs> it's not that pervasive or strong. But what I do see is with the popularity of what was formerly B-movie category uh, and uh, the Twilight series and the Harry Potter series uh, have put the supernatural totally into the mainstream. Mm. And the other big shift that happened was that the dark supernatural of the devil has been really uh, uh, re, re whatever the word is into the bright supernatural. And I did get into that quite a bit in Gothica in terms of twilight, the fact that the vampire went from the third person to the first person with Anne Rice. It was the first vampire hero, subject hero, not object villain. And that was very, very transformative. And that laid the ground for Stephanie Meyer's vampires, who are not only godlike, and definitely, I mean, except for an unfortunate addiction to human blood, (laughs) they try to control like kind of like vegetarians. Uh, (laughs) But they're no longer destroyed by sunlight, uh, which was a, uh, a convention that Bram Stoker introduced. Now, uh, with Meyer, the vi- her, her vampires shimmer in a way that is totally reminiscent of tantric Buddhism. They have diamond bodies. They're immortal. So wow. there's this whole godlike element. And similarly, a lot of other formerly very negative supernatural figures are shown to be completely the reverse. And so that's all part of this integration of the supernatural into mainstream thinking. And my sense of this is that this century, I mean, there are good aspects and bad aspects to it, but this century is experiencing a reinvention of religion. You see it in Hmm. embryonic form, if that's really the right word, uh, in the religions around these individual 
fictions, the, the spiritual cults. There's a spiritual cult around twilight. Uh, they practice bibliomancy. They open the book, you know, every morning and read from them. They pray to whichever members of the uh, vampire family they most relate to, much like, you know, the, the Greek gods in classical times. And you see, of course, in this century, a great revival of evangelicalism in many religions. Now, from where I sit in Berkeley, California, religion is really seen as the devil. You know, religion is completely conflated with political right-wing evangelicalism. So it's just dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm. But if you look at religion in a more positive light and see that it embraces a great deal more than simply that aspect, I suspect that there will be new religions in the same way that Mormonism, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, which Stephanie Myers is a practitioner of and whose, whose tenets you can see clearly in uh, the Twilight series, because there's a sense of the old religions needing some kind of new, uh, whatever you want to call it. That's why I spent the uh, a whole chapter on this very interesting novel called The Shack in Gothica, written by William Rome. It's a great book. I strongly recommend it. And it's an allegory of a man who has lost his daughter to a brutal killer uh, and has lost his faith. And he gets an invitation to go to this, this place in the wilderness where he meets three people, an African-American woman, a, a Middle Eastern carpenter, and an Asian, I forget what her role is, but it's, the, it's basically the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he goes through a journey with them to reconcile his grief and rage and inability to go on with his life i saw the author i i my family has a background in southern baptism i have a number of relatives who are still very devout and uh, so one of them took me to a meeting with william young i mean the the book just went like wildfire it really uh destroys a lot of stereotypes about devout evangelical Protestants, and it also destroys a lot of stereotypes that some adherents of that might have held themselves. So it's both vibrant and problematic, the revival of religion in this century. Mm -hmm. But it has very much to do with the notion that our world is not simply the material world, but it's a, it's a continuum into a realm that we uh, trained as rational thinkers are very unsophisticated in. Yeah. We don't have the tools that some of our ancestors had to evaluate what, you know, what might be going on in those other realms.
So what, what do you make of people who say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual? Is that a distinction without a difference for you? Or do you think that that distinction names something essential about this 21st century religion? I ask because JF and I have kind of worried at that point a fair bit ourselves. And in fact, we have an episode of um, Connor Habib's podcast, which is the first part of which is dropping today, where we talk about the shortcomings of a certain popularized approach to magic, which often feels sort of like materialist instrumental rationality by other means. And one place we arrive at in that conversation, uh, spoiler alert, that it only comes out in a couple more weeks, is trying to think about like not evading the question of religion, but dealing with it head on, not trying to say like, well, we're, it's not really religion, it's this other thing. Um, however, have to acknowledge that the very word religion is for a lot of people loaded with all kinds of associations. In fact, there's a seminar that I teach in my department here at Indiana University, Music and Esoteric Studies, which I've taught um, a couple of times. And one thing I wanted to ask the first time I taught it was, what, what do we call this field that we're working in? I mean, the title of this podcast or the name of this podcast, Weird Studies, started off as a little joke of mine. And uh, I always like to say weird studies is a field that doesn't or can't exist. So if we don't call it weird studies, do we call it esoteric studies? That seems to imply one thing rather than certain other things. Do we call it, as Jeff Kripal does, comparative religion? And my students, including a couple of students who are quite religious and church-going, really didn't like comparative religion. Even the religious students didn't mm. like the word religion. So maybe I'm just talking about branding, you know, maybe a question of what you call it is not so important as the question of what it is in itself. But, uh, but, but I wanted to hear what you might have to say about that. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a rejection of any specific organized religion with a capital letter, because the big re quote unquote religious trends in this century seem to be extremely eclectic. You know, uh, now whether that boils down to just sort of pick and choose, <laughs> you cherry pick from Buddhism and Hinduism and Protestant and so on and so on, or not, uh, uh, who's to say, not me, but I think people are looking for a rebirth, a revival of the spirit that moves religion outside the bureaucracies of organized religion. Now, again, you know, other people may just use it, as you say, as a sort of a catch-all, uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, rather than committing to something or other and um, but I do think it represents a genuine feeling among people that something new is needed and that has yet in terms of a really big movement that has yet to appear but I do think the seeds are there for it and it's interesting to me that in college religion textbooks these days, Scientology has been uh, recognized as a religion. 
And it, of course, is one of the classic 20th century UFO religions. There's a right. wonderful book. Uh, it's out of date now from the 90s called The Gods Have Landed, <laughs> which <laughs> examines all of the religions that are based on the notion that uh, extraterrestrials came to this planet and initiated um well, it's kind of like the creationism that says that the, the world started 5,000 years ago. You know, it's kind of in that mode. Um, yeah, but it's, and, a, it's a, a translation of older notions into 20th century pop fiction, you know, and the way that pop fiction movies have influenced people's notion of what the other worlds, the other realm, whatever consists of. L. Ron Hubbard was an actual science fiction writer before he became oh yes uh, a, the founder of a of a religion, and um, I believe he was also interested in Thelema and uh, and Crowley and uh, that sort of thing. But when it comes to okay, so this is something interesting that I, I wonder what your thoughts are on. You say that Scientology is now recognized as a religion in, in university textbooks, and it's the first kind of UFO cult to accede to that status. Do you feel that there's, I don't have an answer, but do you feel that the same kind of um, inversion that we were discussing earlier, the inversion that leads from the divine man, Adam Kadmon or whatever, traditional esoteric culture, uh, it's inversion into the artificial intelligence thing, this kind of like bringing heaven down to earth and or burying Plato move. Do you think that the same move is happening in the transformation of gods into extraterrestrials, which are imminent in the sense that they are just out there physically? Or do you think that the extraterrestrial is simply another form symbolic form that the divine takes and i know i can know the answer can be both but just love to hear your your thoughts on that yeah well I, you know i don't see it as inversion or burying i i see it more as a displacement right that's the word uh maybe translation into contemporary terms i have to say though i think ufo religions are so 20th century mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm not sure that they uh, apply with equal uh force now, I confess I haven't kind of kept my finger on the pulse, and I don't know what the latest things are, but I just have this feeling now about Scientology that's a tad old-fashioned and has possibly been losing its steam. A bit like the Masons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know what's to come, and I don't think it's something we should necessarily fear, you know, uh, you know, like a probably good ab academics would. I don't think it's uh, Yeats's beats <laughs> slouching to Bethlehem waiting to be born. I I'm just curious to see what happens. And I wish that so many of my friends and colleagues who are not in esoteric studies could be a bit more open-minded about it. It could appreciate books, books like The Shack, for instance, um, as modern allegory uh, that is that speaks to very strongly to many, many, many people. I was moved to read it. 
That brings up something that I wanted to ask you about. As somebody who works in academia, I am keenly aware of how doing work in this area, in uh, the religious, the numinous, magical, um, etc., however we want to designate this area of study and research, I'm very aware of how you're always facing a stiff headwind of, I don't want to say skepticism, because that is often how people like to say, like, I'm a skeptic, and they might just be close-minded. You know what I mean? They definitely have a position. It's not, a, a skepticism implies that you're open to hear from all sides. Right. Exactly. And this ain't that, right? It's a, posi a positive assertion of its own creed, but it's a, a creed that, actually, this is the academic version of um, what we were talking about with, like, you know, tech tech billionaires who don't know any history and don't know any of the sort of cultural history of either this society or any other. Academics often can be shockingly selective in what they know uh, or what they can bring on board from the past in informing their own current worldview. So, I mean, as, an ac as a working academic, that's something that I've certainly thought a lot about. Basically, how to smuggle stuff over that line like in the chapter in the secret life of puppets is is this real or am i crazy mm. uh, a very succinct way of uh phrasing like a certain invisible line between what we can all agree we is um part of a common sense reality and the stuff on the other side of that line where you're gonna need to explain why you're even talking about it and what what amazes me about this book is the fact that it was published in 2001. Yeah. So it's like 20 years ago, more now than 20 years ago. And I think about like, you know, the challenges that one faces now in the 21st century, which already, as you say, has undergone a very considerable transformation in the shape of its culture and its discourses around spirituality or religion or whatever we want to call it. How much more of a headwind would you have faced in 2001? And one of the things that I appreciate about this book, quite apart from its marvelously lucid style, it's a genuine pleasure to read, is how you manage to kind of negotiate that line, the line past which people are liable to say, no, yeah, you're crazy. No, in fact... If anything, I think that a rationalist who reads this book in good faith will at some point realize that there is a way of thinking that is no less rational than his, I'm picturing a man, and yet that is, by any definition he would endorse, absolutely bonkers. In other words, the book is totally rational and it's completely supernaturalist. And it's at least it leaves that door wide yeah. open. Uh, in fact, there are moments where you make a very good case for a truly rationalist stance being necessarily kind of supernaturalist in the sense that you kind of have to include that. That has to be on board. The transcendent has to be on board for any of it to make sense, which is something I completely get behind. And now I'm reminded of my courses in Aquinas at the, at St. Michael's because we were talking about about the University of Toronto before we started. And it was in that class who's a professor, I forget his name. He was so good. He probably taught when you were there, uh, Victoria. 
at one point he made this very simple, he summarized this very simple argument, which made me realize I don't even remember the argument. I just remember the feeling. It's like, oh my God, it's either there is the transcendent, we're all crazy, or none of this <laughs> exists. Like you need that to be online. <laughs> and um, what I find so admirable in your book, and it's something that I, I also sense in Eric Davis's book, who was writing about mm -hmm. at about the same time about similar topics, is that there is this courage that, um, I mean, you you blaze the trail for what we now call like the weirdosphere as a joke, in the sense that you you kind of set the table, you made it possible to have a kind of discussion. It hit me this time around how fundamentally seminal, how foundational this book is for the way, for it, it, like yeah. how much, for example, this podcast could only exist in a world with that book. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and how much, uh, how much the work of a lot of people who are very prominent in what we call half jokingly the weirdest fear, uh, how much it owes to your thinking. Like for example, this idea of a sub zeitgeist, as you put it, I like that coinage that mirrors or expresses, reflects the, um, suppressed and marginalized forces of of a spiritualized culture and the idea of a discarded and critically disregarded trash stratum popular culture pulp novels and so on being a place where all of that stuff goes those ideas have been rehearsed a lot in the years since you published this book your arguments were they have historical priority and they also i think in the minute care, the, the human, loving humanistic detail and sensitivity of your readings of fiction mm -hmm. is kind of a gold yeah, standard. Not, and also your genuine commitment to a kind of platonic or platonist way of looking at the world, whereas often what we find is a kind of uh, a purely intellectual interest in that yeah. quote, but but since you are an unabashed supernaturalist, it gives you an edge. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just let me just say one thing. Uh, as you both know, academic trends get very entrenched and are slow to change. I zipped through school as a kid before deconstruction was even a, a twinkle in what's-his-name's eye, and uh, there was no such thing as critical theory. That has emerged after that, and what I do salute about it is the commitment to philosophy and rigorous thinking that was uh, completely absent before in literary studies. Um, an enlargement of uh, the sort of universe in terms of literary studies. However, what I find amusing is the way hardcore critical theory and its very many manifestations now, and boy, has pop culture been taken up. <laughs> you know, you can't turn around without, you know, uh, a previously taboo be whatever being relentlessly analyzed uh, and critiqued. But what I tend to see in critical theory as a, you know, and, and it's probably wrong to make it even a single discipline, but what I do see is this tendency, just like the cyber theorists, translate everything into uh, basically mechanistic terms. Critical theorists 
translate, uh, there's a, a famous study of Alistair Crowley, I won't mention any names here, that basically completely uh, translates everything he did into either psychoanalytic or cultural terms, which is certainly one level. And I never would uh, say that he had any particular <laughs> connection with the transcendent. I, I, you know, but but then there are many others who take up religious. Um, again, I'm not mentioning any names here. Religious uh, group and other writers of you know the supernatural and so on and it's like bleach in the wash <laughs> it takes out mm -hmm. all of that and turns it into a sort of cultural political whatever statement and and i find that very reductive mm -hmm. yeah definitely the historicism of it is sort of a problem for me at any rate the sense in which somebody like crowley for example we can understand him as a manifestation of the changing role of x or the transformative technology of y uh, whatever it is that crowley is actually saying about you know about the aeon of horus for example we're historicizing it in such a way that it almost doesn't matter that crowley says it it, it crowley becomes sort of um a sock puppet or a mouthpiece. Yeah, it's back totally backgrounded. That that aspect of it is totally backgrounded. Yeah. And I remember reading reading with great interest a biography of Montague Rhodes James in which his ghost stories took up exactly one page and the rest of this 400 page biography was about what a bad scholar he was. <laughs> this is such a classic example of <laughs> Academic assassin. Um, so if you had some advice to give, let's say, to young scholars today who don't want to repeat the mistakes of their forebears in so far as they don't, they, they want to have skin in the game, like you do in your book, like they want to have a commitment to, well, how do you, what do you have to say to the people who are going to, you know, the people who might write the next uh, uh, Secret Life of Puppets? You know, I'm just one person here, and it's not my, I don't know that I can tell anyone what to do with their life except follow their deepest impulse, even if that means ending up at a, a third-rate university as an adjunct rather than top of the line somewhere. For myself, you know, when I got interested in all this stuff again, and I was just going to all these lectures at Berkeley, and I taught, uh, you know, a couple of times in the rhetoric department there, but I was never part of the faculty, and I've always been an outsider. I mean, uh, for the last 15 or so years, I've been teaching very happily in a very progressive uh, creative writing master's program at Goddard College, which doesn't require me to hew any kind of particular academic line whatsoever. I have seen cases of people, prominent scholars, who've deliberately not gone down this route because of fear of what would be, uh, you know, the, the, the stakes in their professional career. That was quite a while ago. So I, I, you know, I don't know what the situation is now. You know, I remember someone writing me a while, a few years ago. I, 
if she, if she ever listens to this, I, I hope, I hope she followed her heart, but she was asking me her, her, her great desire was to write Gothic novels, but she had been given a very generous fellowship and she was in a PhD program and she was conflicted about what to do. And based on my own experience, I had a very generous Woodrow Wilson fellowship to go to Toronto and could have stayed right through to my, uh, to get a PhD. But for all kinds of culture clash and other reasons, I decided to drop out after getting a master's degree. And a PhD in the academic world is basically your union card. And such is the state of affairs now that even having that union card is absolutely no guarantee that you're going to be doing anything but being a freeway flyer, uh, you know, going from this college to that college, you know, every term. There's no longer the great job security it used to be. So at, at times I've lamented that I didn't just bite the bullet and go ahead and do that, that it would have been much easier for me financially and in other ways. Uh, a certain point, I was actually considering going back and getting a PhD when I immersed myself in the, during the 90s in writing this book. But what I do know is that my PhD thesis would have been nothing like The Secret Life of Puppets. <laughs> so I'm thankful on that level that I didn't, you know, I didn't go ahead and do it. On the other hand, I do know people who flourish in that environment and for whom that's not a constricting element. And and so it really, it does come down to individual choice in the end. So I, I can't steer people in one direction or the other. But you started by saying, follow your deepest. Yes, but that said, independently of, of people who may have children and yeah. heavy financial obligations. Of course. yeah. I didn't have that. So, uh, so in a way, I had a great deal more freedom to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And I also, I mean, it's a, it's a recognition of how much energy have you got, right? <laughs> There are people who are just so supercharged, they can do all of those things. And I, I tip my hat to them, but I'm, I think I have the metabolism of a snake, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a plotter. I can get up and do stuff every day, but I could not begin to do what so many people I see doing every day in terms of their job, their, you know, their what has to be a hobby, their writing, uh, their family, all of those things. It's, it's. Do you have a writing project right now? Are you working on anything you'd um, like to talk about? Or? Well, a couple of things. Um, there's another novel I wrote, I would like to see the light of day uh, that I would like to do some revision on. I would like to get a, third edition of my writer's block book out again, which calls for writing another chapter or two and bringing it up to date. There has been some interest, uh, some film interest in Neighbor George. Uh, it's nothing definite yet, but I'm turning over in my mind the ways it might translate 
into a screenplay. So hmm. those are projects I'm thinking about. What can we say? Thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, oh, I, I here's another thing I forgot to tell you about. Uh, I am, I wrote a long time ago a um, a wild screenplay that I converted into a stage piece based on Balzac's Seraphita, a strange angelic being who appears as a man to women and as a woman to men. Uh, and I'm now in the process of trying to convert it into a musical piece with a young genius here in Berkeley named David Kanaga, who uh, does all kinds of miraculous uh, MIDI things, creating full orchestras and, and so on. So, so that's going on in the background too. Oh, that sounds cool. Do you know what the French title is? Because I think I know this story. It's Serafita. Oh, it's called that in French? Okay, I don't know. I thought it was something else. No, he wrote another one about a hermaphroditic being, but this is very, very Swedenborgian, and it's set in the fjordland of Norway, and uh, oh, wow. it's completely unreadable. I'll just tip you <laughs> off. It has a like a 75-page death scene, uh, but it created such a sensation when Balzac published it in the 1830s that there was this whole huge... Swedenborgian revival uh, in Paris based on it. It's, 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 it's kind of an amazing piece and very much in the contemporary sub-zeitgeist and zeitgeist these days. I think. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>